All right. Hello and welcome to the Intervention Podcast or the Pittsburgh Anti-Imperialist League Podcast, depending on which stream you're tuning in on. This is Nick here with Steve. And tonight we are happy to be joined by author, activist, and international human rights professor at Pitt, Daniel Kovalik. Dan, thanks for joining us again. You're very welcome. Can I say something about, about your introduction? Yeah, please. Yeah, I just lost my job at Pitt. Oh, no. Sorry to hear yeah. that, man. So I think because of my views um, on Ukraine and Russia. So there, there you go. Standing up for what's right and what you believe in. I mean, does it do you many favors in academia? Does it, right? Tale as old as no. time. No. By the way, I, and again, I just think because it's relevant to the discussion, you probably saw that the new chancellor, Pitt, is going to make $950,000. Wow. That... I figured it out. So an adjunct like me, she will make the salary of 316 adjunct professors, plus benefits, which adjuncts don't get, and she gets a free residence. So there you go. Not a bad job if you can get it. That's right. As long as you conform, yeah. right? Exactly. So <laughs> there you go. I had to say. No, it's just, you know, our uh, free thinking nonprofit institutions all over for us, isn't it? But nonprofit. Right. Yeah. They seem to make incredible profits for being nonprofit. Enough know? to pay people a million bucks. But yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, man. I should have cleared that with you. Before. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, I think it's good. I want people yeah, to get it out there. I mean, I think it's great. It's a great segue in everything we're talking about. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we are here tonight uh, to talk about your new book, Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. And like I have to say, as with a lot of this stuff, I simultaneously immensely enjoyed the book, but I was also infuriated by it. And like my anger is not at anything that you did, you know, because you paint this, you know, heroic depiction of the Nicaraguan people and the Sandinistas, but because it's that familiar picture of U.S. violence and intervention against, you know, a sovereign people, right? And I think that's something that you did very well. You portrayed the persistence of the Sandinistas in spite of decades-long project of U.S. repression that has manifested in multivariate ways through the years, right? Um, and this is a common theme that we see in a lot of countries. But, you know, I know this struggle, and we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details about it, but beyond just being in line with your consistent anti-imperialist politics, it's also somewhat personal to you. So can you just describe your relationship to Nicaragua, and in that vein, what led you to writing this book now? Yes. First of all, I think your reaction is, you know, what I would want from people. I mean, you should, of course, you know, enjoy reading it, but also have some righteous ind indignation for what the U.S. has done to this poor little country. Yeah. So I went to Nicaragua in 1987. I was 19 years old and I went there during the Contra War. A lot of Americans and Europeans and others were going there at the time. These were very heady days, you know, because we were witnessing the U.S.-backed counter-revolution in that country. And I went there because, I'll be totally honest, at the time I went, I was, my politics were evolving, but I wasn't certain really what was happening there. Because if you read one publication, you'd think one way. If you read another way, publication, you'd think, the completely opposite, right? And so I just said, look, I I need to go there for myself. So in September of 1987, I went down there to Okatal, which is uh, a northern 
city of Nicaragua on the border of Honduras. So it was uh, in a war zone because the Contras were mostly in Honduras. There was a southern front in Costa Rica, but that was not particularly significant. And I spent a month there, really just amongst the people, uh, very, very poor people at that time. And what I witnessed was a people struggling against a mighty empire, the United States, with very little to fight back with. And it changed my life. I mean, I really, I left thinking, you know, the country I believed in, the United States, is not what I thought it was. It is not fighting for democracy or freedom or human rights. It is fighting against those things. And, and I was clear on that. And that was 1987. I've never changed my views since. I mean, that, that was it. That changed my life. You get them shattered like that. I mean, that has to happen. Yeah, my ideals were shattered. I mean, because I was raised in a very conservative Catholic home and believed in America. You know, I feel like, you know, it's like the first scene of The Godfather, you know, where Bonacera says, I believe in America, you know. Uh, I don't anymore, <laughs> you know, and I didn't after 1987. So, Yeah, no, I mean, that is just, I mean, I can imagine that it just does so much for your worldview when, when you can actually see the impact that it's having, that the U.S. intervention and the U.S. empire is having on just poor people just struggling to, you know, come together and make their lives better. Um, and I know you mentioned, you know, you went in the 70s and 80s, but I think it's also important that we recognize that the beginnings of the U.S. meddling in the affairs of the Nicaraguan people, they go back decades prior to that. Right. And so can you just give us kind of like a brief overview of that history and specifically, I think, the origins of the Sandinista movement? Yeah. So we could go back to the William Walker years of the 1850s, but let's start in the 19, early 20th century. So the U.S. Marines in nine, around 1910 invaded Nicaragua to protect U.S. mining interests. By the way, mining interests based in Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania, we should say that to those listening from Pittsburgh. There was a gold mining interest here that wanted a license to to mine gold in Nicaragua. And the very progressive president at that time in Nicaragua, Jose Zelaya, denied them this license. And they went to their friend, the Secretary of State Knox at the time, under William Howard Taft. Knox was also from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they were buddies and said, Hey, uh, Secretary of State Knox, you know, could you do something to help us? Because they're denying us a gold mining franchise down in Nicaragua. So he said, Sure. And they sent in the U.S. Marine to overthrow Zelaya. Zelaya fled pretty quickly, and a new president succeeded him. And in very short order, the U.S. Marines backing counter-revolutionaries in Nicaragua, overthrew and killed that president. And a young man named Augusto Sandino saw the body of that president dragged through the streets of his town in a little town outside Messiah, Nicaragua. And Sandino decided at that point that his destiny was to fight the U.S. Marines and drive them from Nicaragua. 
Well, he had a chance to do that because the U.S. Marines occupied Nicaragua from about 1910 to 1933. In the meantime, in around 1927 or so, Sandino, now an adult, and now in Nueva Segovia, which is where I was in 1987, in the north of Nicaragua, began a guerrilla campaign against the U.S. Marines that were still in Nicaragua, mostly organizing peasants, working class people, very poor people against the U.S. Marines. And this, the Sandinistas, you know, those who followed Sandino at that time, right? Sandinistas were very effective. And so effective that the U.S. Marines not only never defeated them in battle even once, they couldn't even find them. You know, the Sandino and his people would attack, and I say people because it was men and women, attack the U.S. Marines and then hide. The U.S. Marines could never find them. So eventually the U.S. Marines began to just engage in aerial bombing of cities like Okotal, where I was in 1987, and engaged in the indiscriminate murder and rape of Nicaraguan civilians because they couldn't get at the guerrillas. Well, of course, this only increased the resolve of the Nicaraguan people under Sandino. And in the end, they fought off the U.S. Marines. They drove the U.S. Marines out of Nicaragua in 1933, which was an incredible victory. Now, but in the meantime, the Marines and the U.S. were organizing and training the National Guard, La Guardia Nacional, to rule Nicaragua in the stead of the Marines under someone named Anastasio Somoza. And so when the Marines pulled out, they had the National Guard in Somoza ready to try to rule Nicaragua in the U.S.'s interests, again, in the place of the U.S. Marines. Now, Sandino and his forces were still intact, in full. So what happened was uh, the new president of Nicaragua invited Sandino to Managua to sign a peace deal, to end the conflict. Sandino was willing to do that. He said, well, my main goal is to get rid of the U.S. Marines, they're gone. So I'm willing to do that. He went to Managua. They signed a peace deal. But on his way out of town, he and another general were murdered by the National Guard. And Sandino's body was destroyed, disappeared, whatever. That His body's never been found. And within a year, Samosa, the head of the National Guard, would declare himself the president, and really the dictator of Nicaragua. And from 1934 until 1979, he and his two sons would rule Nicaragua with very strong U.S. backing with an iron hand. Yeah, all for freedom and democracy, right? All in the interest of freedom of democracy. Even for, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, probably our most our best and most liberal president said, "He's our bastard." Yeah, oh yeah, he's a son of a bitch, but he's All our right, son yeah, of a that's bitch, what it right? was. That was his line, right? And I believe there's even you can see a picture of Roosevelt in the back of a limousine with Samosa, you know, driving through 
uh, Washington or in New York or something. But anyway, yeah. So Samosa was our boy and his kids were our boys till 1979. Yeah. No, I mean, you mentioned Roosevelt and it's just, it's always been bipartisan, but just the fact that it was originated in gold mining interests. I mean, in 1910, it's just got that like quintessential robber baron type vibe, right? But you've got this, the US empire behind it, which is really what it still is today. In any case, thank you for that background. Steve, did you have any questions or anything to add on all that? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll add is, Dan, we recently did a podcast on the civil war in Greece. And, you know, we talked a lot about how the RAF, I'm originally from England, so. I, I can hear that. <laughs> how the RAF, you know, bombed Greece, similarly to what the US did here. And it's just, you know, I know why we don't know this, but the only time we kind of remember the civilian bombings is Guernica, right? Because it was, I mean, right. I think, or at least in, you know, the general public, they every, most people know about Guernica, but nobody knows about, you know, the British bombing Greece and the U.S. here and everywhere else that we, both of our nations have done this stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I thought that was interesting just from reading your book. I did, because I, I didn't know that part of it. No, it's, a, it's very interesting. And, and, you know, it's important to talk about that, about these aerial bombings. Because in Okotal, I mentioned this in the book, they have a plaque saying, that these aerial bombings by the Marines were the first aerial bombings in history in 1927. But as I mentioned in the book, that's not even true. You know, the first ones I think we know about were of the Italians in Libya in like 1911. So the West has been bombing these developing countries going back to the early 20th century. As I also mentioned in the book, you know, I went to the University of Dayton Dayton is the home of the Wright brothers, right? And the Wright brothers, when they were developing the airplane, they thought that the best commercial use or the way they could make money from the airplane was not passenger airplanes, because, right, the first airplanes were tiny and it fit one or two people. They thought the best way to make money was to sell it to the War Department for aerial bombardment, right? So and that's what it was really used for in the initial phases. So I think this is all very important to talk about and remember, you know, how this all developed, this aerial bombing of developing countries, or as I used to say, we used to say in my day, third world countries. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's just this process of unearthing the history. And I think, you know, to while you got to have that experience of doing it in person, but just trying to attempt to kind of cause a little cognitive dissonance, I think, in a lot of ways with people getting people to kind of challenge the history that we're taught and, you know, this worldview that America is doing things for the interests of people broadly. Because as we can see time and time again, we're actively fighting against the interests of the people. But in any case, so yeah, so you mentioned that in 1979, July 17th, that the last Somoza, the last kind of murderous Queasling of the U.S. empire is thrown out by the Sandinistas, right? And of course, this does not stop the violent reaction by the U.S. and its clients. You know, I think it's also important that you mentioned that, you know, the, the Contras had a base of operations in Honduras, and it just shows the importance of kind of like the expansive nature of this empire via client states, right? Because it literally was providing a base of operations, but in any case, you know, we see this escalation, I think, under Carter. It's important to mention Carter here, who's often viewed as this liberal darling, right? Like our quote unquote good president. But 
Right. Fact of the matter is he's also a war criminal. But Reagan also brings this to a fever pitch, right? And I think, you know, many of our listeners will at least be familiar with the broad strokes of the Iran-Contra affair and the consequences of the U.S. and U.S. arming and funding what was essentially like, I think we have to call it a fascist paramilitary force in a lot of ways. But what's amazing to me and what really comes out in your book is what the Sandinistas were able to achieve in spite of all this, right? So can you talk about, I guess, one, paint the picture of the reality of life for people on the ground during this time, but then also the social and economic progress that the Sandinistas and the people were able to achieve amidst all of this. Yes. So first of all, just to go back a little to this idea of the aerial bombing, I think it, we have to mention that in the last year of the insurrection, 1978 to 1979, Samosa bombed his own cities in Nicaragua, killed 50,000 Nicaraguans, really following the Marines' example back in the 20s. So we need to point that out. So, in, But it, by, as you mentioned, July 17th, Samosa flees, by the way, with the entire treasury. And on July 19th, 1979, the day that the Sandinistas celebrate, the Sandinistas enter Managua and take over. This was a, just an amazingly happy celebratory time. And the Sandinistas had about two years to try to carry out their program largely unmolested. So immediately, they begin a literacy campaign in which 100,000 volunteers go to the countryside and teach poor peasant people to read and write. At the time that the Sandinistas took over, Nicaragua had a very high illiteracy rate. Within months, though, illiteracy was largely wiped out through this literacy campaign. Meanwhile, the Sandinistas began free health care, free education, began giving land to the peasants. You know, this is a largely agrarian society. About half the people there were in our peasants, small farmers. Uh, but at that time, most of the peasants were working other people's land, right? Rich people's land. They, you know, might be called serfs. So the, Nicar the Sandinistas redistributed land from the wealthy, gave it to the poor peasants. And they, so they, you know, started creating this egalitarian society. And again, they had about two, not quite two years to do that without assault. Then in 1981, Reagan began the Contra War against Nicaragua. Now, as you mentioned, you mentioned Carter. Carter helped lay the groundwork for this. He flew a bunch of National Guard leaders to Honduras before he left office in planes marked with Red Cross insignia, which, as Noam Chomsky notes, is a war crime. And those National Guardsmen began to be trained right away by the Argentine fascist junta and by the CIA. So in 1981, they had been fully trained and were armed and ready and began to attack soft targets in Nicaragua. And, you know, so immediately, well, you know, again, with less than two years, the revolution is under assault. 
despite that, for the first, you know, several years of the revolution, the gains continued to be made. Again, fighting illiteracy, fighting disease, inoculating people against preventable diseases. Things were pretty good into the mid-1980s, even despite the country. Meanwhile, 1984, the Sandinistas ran for election, the first free and fair elections in Nicaraguan history, and they won by a big margin. So there was still a certain exuberance there through the mid-1980s. But by the late 1980s, the Contras began to really undermine the economy and morale of Nicaragua. The Contras were basically terrorists, to put a finer point on it. They were not liberation forces, as Reagan claimed. Liberation forces would seek to gain territory, to overthrow the government and take power. The Contras really never tried to do that because they knew they had no support. So their goal was to, you know, kill doctors and teachers and engineers, destroy hospitals and clinics and schools really to just terrorize the population. And that they were good at doing. Um, by 1990, the Contras had killed about 30,000 Nicaraguans on top of the 50,000 Samosa killed. Between the Contra attacks and the U.S. embargo on Nicaragua, the CIA's mining of the Nicaraguan harbors and blowing up of oil installations, by 1990, the economy was largely in ruins, and the revolution was really, you know, suffering. And I saw that in 1987. By the time I got there, there was still an exuberance. There was still a revolutionary spirit, but it was beginning to flag, right? People were tired, and there was a certain... Sadness and again, the poverty that the Sandinistas were beginning to eradicate was coming back because of all the things the U.S. was doing. Yeah, it just you mentioned that it was the first free and fair election, and I think by you know external observers that was validated to be the case, right? Yes, it just that whole kind of narrative there just reminds me of. Uh, I know we share a love of Michael Parenti. Just I'm assuming yes. that from your readings, right? And it just strikes me one quote that you know he's really remembered for it's just if the communists or the socialists are in this for power then why do they always side with the oppressed right like if they wanted power wouldn't it be just easier to side with the u.s empire and do their bidding <laughs> like why do like just as in we saw in cuba and i mean to a lesser extent in guatemala at least a lesser extent in terms of ideology like the first thing that these people undertake is land distribution and literacy and healthcare. And it's like, why is that? Well, we know why it is, but it's like these things that are just basic human needs and human wants are just such an affront to the empire. It's just, I want to say baffling, but it's not because we understand the motives. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it is anger provoking. I mean, yeah. it's sad to see. And it was sad to watch, you know, what happened to this very sincere and legitimate revolution you know how it was attacked mercilessly absolutely mercilessly by the united states and again everyone who went to the nicaragua in the 80s was marked by that was very impacted by that 
And it's hard. Once you see that, you can't unsee it. Yeah. I mean, you also in the, in the book mentioned, you just talked about all the progress that they made. And, you know, I think that was all, I mean, if you just have to look at the reports from Oxfam and everything else that you quote, but, you know, the progress they made also considering that Samosa had effectively emptied the country of any funds, right? He'd taken everything he could. I think you, you have a quote in the book, something like if he could have taken the land, he would have taken that as well. So to see the progress that they made in that short amount of time, and then you can imagine how depressed and depressing it would be for the people to see pr- all that progress in seven years, and then that just coming to an end by, as you say, like a terrorist organization, effectively. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I guess that's a segue into what happened in 1990. You know, So in 1990, which many people say were the first free and fair election, which again is not true, it was 1984. In 1990, the Sandinistas called for early elections, and their hope was, if we do this, if we call for early elections and show the world we're truly democratic, the U.S. might stop the control, right? But what the U.S. did is say, okay, fine, good, it's good you called elections, but here, here's, here's our message to you, to the people of Nicaragua. If you vote for the Sandinistas, we will continue the control war. Even if it is a free and fair election, we don't care, right? And we will continue the economic blockade. But if you vote against the Sandinistas, we'll end the Contra War, end the blockade, and send you millions of dollars in humanitarian aid. So they basically held a gun to the heads of the Nicaraguan voters who ended up voting against the Sandinistas, not by a huge margin, but because they were extorted. And by the way, the Contra War did end, the blockade did end, but the U.S. never did send that humanitarian aid of promise. But nonetheless, the Sandinistas were electorally defeated. But the thing that needs to be pointed out to those who accuse the Sandinistas of being tyrants and whatnot is even though the elections were totally unfair and unfree because of what the U.S. did, because of their extortion of the voters. The Sandinistas nonetheless stepped down peacefully and allowed Violeta Chamora, the opposition candidate, to take power. So this was the tyrannical Sandinistas, right? Right. Um, They held early elections. They were completely fraudulent because of what the U.S. did. But the Sandinistas said, "Okay, the voters have spoken and they stepped down. This was an incredible act of magnanimity, which the Sandinistas has, have shown so many times, right? And then began the 17 years of being in the wilderness for the Sandinistas. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that really stuck out to me is that as revolutions go, this is a really unique trajectory because we know that the Sandinistas are back in power now. So, you know, it's amazing to me their ability to kind of stay the course. And I think in a world where you see the fall of the Soviet bloc, the rise of US unipolarity, it's amazing that they were able to kind of stay that course and kind of manage this, as I said, very distinct kind of path, I think, as left-wing revolutions go. But what about them specifically allowed them to do this? You mentioned their magnanimity. And I was struck by the capacity for the Sandinistas to forgive even former Contras and bring them in. I mean, what is it about 
the Sandinistas and the Nicaraguan people, I think, that you see specifically about their character, about their culture that allows them to kind of have that capacity? And how does that help them to succeed? Well, the truth is they have this very interesting kind of mixture of socialism and Christianity, which motivates them, you know, and that goes back to Sandino. You know, they believed in forgiveness, Christian forgiveness, you know. So the first thing the Sandinistas did when they took power was suspend the death penalty, right? And they freed a bunch of National Guardsmen, which, again, was used against them because they were used to form the countries, these National Guardsmen. But I think they believe in this Christian value of forgiveness, and that is what makes them different. You know, they... they Interestingly, never had a very strong communist party in in Nicaragua. They had a unique revolution, you know, again, that was based in this very eclectic and unique version of socialism. And even when Daniel ran in 2006, when he won, he ran with a a Contra leader as his vice presidential running mate. I mean, it's it's incredible, right? It would be like Lincoln running for re-election you know, with, with, um, you know, Robert E. Lee or something. I mean, it's a, it's a hard to even imagine. Right? right. And that really has been their strength, maybe in a way their weakness in the sense that it's been exploited by the U S so many times, but I think they need to be given their props for staying true to themselves, that they really did want to have a revolution that was decent and that was not marked by a terror which most revolutions are, which was not about retribution or revenge. In fact, the government now, which is led by the Sandinistas and Daniel Ortega, is called the government for peace and reconciliation. I mean, that you know, that is their motto. And it's quite beautiful, really. So, and it brought that, you know, that's part of what brought me to it. I should say I was raised Roman Catholic. So I, I would, you know, this, this really was something I was drawn towards. And still I am. Still really marvel at that. Yeah, just on a personal note, I too was raised Roman Catholic. It is interesting to see how other places, I think, outside of the West actually put some of those values into practice that I think are so often missing in how it's put out here, especially as it gets intertwined with the state. I don't want to get into the religion rabbit hole too much, but it it is nice to see that some of the actual you know Christian values and Jesus's teachings actually on display and integrated in a in a really meaningful way. Yeah, I think they go back to the roots of the Catholic and Christian Church, you right. know, which did I think we would agree moved far away from that once they became the official church of the Holy Roman Empire. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, things changed. You got to go bit, way back. But I, yeah, but I think that they do draw from the early days, the communal, communist, right. small C communist days of the Catholic Church. So. Absolutely. But because you mentioned Ortega, and I think it's good in a lot of ways that we haven't focused on like a singular individual, right? Because we're right. talking about people, movements and things like that. But he is an important figure throughout the history of the Sandinista movement, right? And obviously, there's a stark contrast between the portrait that you painted the man and the caricature that gets presented to us in the Western media, by the, by the Western media. So can you just tell us a little bit about Ortega, his importance to the movement, and what we get so wrong about him sitting from our armchairs in the West? Yeah, I mean, first of all, he came from a 
you know, modestly well-off family in Nicaragua, but he joined the Sandinistas very early on in the 1960s in the effort to overthrow Somoza. He was apprehended fairly early on by the National Guard, and he lived for seven years under in prison under the National Guard. He was tortured every day as every prisoner was. There's not a lot known about his incarceration because he hasn't spoken much about it, but he did write some poetry, which allude to people being sodomized and forced to live in the tiny, which people told me was a coffin, that he was forced to live in a coffin for months at a time, forced to eat glass and feces. I mean, this was someone who was brutalized for seven years because he was trying to overthrow Samosa. He was finally freed in a very daring, you know, act by the Sandinistas. And apparently he came out, he was a different person, very quiet, very shy because of what he had endured. But he also learned some things in prison. I mean, the one interesting thing he learned was the difference between a National Guardsman and a revolutionary was not that huge that, you know, they might, you know, a National Guardsman and a revolutionary might come from very similar backgrounds, but their belief systems, you know, were formed in different ways, but also it was not hard necessarily to convince a National Guardsman of the rightness of the Sandinista goals, you know. And I think so what he learned in prison was the ability to reconcile with his enemies, which is kind of a beautiful thing. I mean, it's very, again, I have to say, it's very Christian. You know, we're, we're at this interview is taking place during Easter, the, something very Christian about that. And when he comes out, he's, you know, becomes a very major leader of the Sandinistas. And he does help lead the Sandinistas to overthrow Samosa. He becomes one of the main leaders of the National Directorate, and he is the first president of the new Sandinista government. And he has continued to follow really the path of a revolutionary consistently throughout his life. You know, that's where a lot of people just, you know, may disagree on that. They say, oh, yeah, well, we like Danny Ortega in the 80s, but we don't like him after that. You know, but, you know, what was he doing in the 90s, you know, when when the Sandinistas were voted out of power and Danielle stepped down, he began to very quietly organize the people. He would meet with people all over the country, you know, have dinners with very poor people to simply, you know, hear them, talk to them. And this was his quiet way to organize and bring the Sandinistas back to power. And again, he ends up coming back to power in 2006, running with a former contra. And his message in all of his, his elections has been peace and reconciliation. He has done all he can to make peace in that country. He's tried to work with the Catholic Church, tried to work with the business community. And then in 2018, both the Catholic Church and the business community turned against him in a very violent way, right? And that is a story not told much, but it is told in my book. But even still, he has tried to 
bring reconciliation and to offer peace to anyone who, who would accept it. And that's the Danielle that I know and believe it. And that's why he's wildly popular in Nicaragua. The polls show he's very popular because the Nicaraguans see it. But I do think that the you know propaganda in the West is just you know very powerful, even amongst many left. You know, and that's very sad to me. Yeah, um, and I do want to get some more of the detail from you on the 2018 crisis, as you call it in the book. But I just want to make note of just because you mentioned it's fashionable, it was fashionable to like Ortega and the Sandinistas in the 80s, right? And I think that is, as you already said, just a, it's a problem. It's a microcosm of a problem in the in the U.S. left. I think especially, it's like this fetishism for defeat. Right. Like when they're struggling, we can uphold them. But when they're actually trying to do work on the ground and achieve things and achieve peace and reconciliation, then they're not worth supporting anymore for some unimaginable reason. I, I just don't quite understand at what point it becomes, you know, not okay to support somebody when they're trying to work. But I mean, it, it's a problem here that we need to address. In any case, Steve, did you have anything on Ortega? Yeah. I mean, I was just going to mention, I don't know, Dan, if you saw it, but it was just under a year ago, 60 minutes to the, a piece on him. And I was watching it with my wife and some family members that are far more right than, than I am comfortable with. But, um, you know, they were, they always rail about, rail on about like fake news and, and how it, nothing's real. But whenever there's anything about a perceived left wing government, they just kind of accept that as fact if it comes on in, on the news. And so I kind of questioned that. I said, well, why do you believe the news? But, you know, why don't you believe the news except when it's about these, you know, left-wing governments. And they didn't really have an answer, but I mean, it, you know, 60 Minutes, which I guess would be viewed as somewhat liberal and it, it, well, at least center maybe, but I mean, it was pretty brutal what they, I mean, they, you know, I don't know if you saw that, but you know, they were, they were trying to claim he was censoring the press and he'd imprisoned opponents. And it was, yeah, it, it's just a very different picture than you paint, as you said. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, it reminds me of what Fidel Castro said once, he said, call me a devil, call me a saint, be objective. And there is a total lack of objectivity in this country about people like Daniel Ortega. Certainly has his flaws, but you never hear about the good things. But moreover, you know, in terms of, you know, the people who were jailed in 2018, who were the same people, by the way, who were sent in an airplane to the United States. By the way, which they view as a golden ticket. I mean, they're, they're hardly suffering being sent to the U.S. These were people who organized a very violent insurrection in 2018, backed by the United States. Uh, an insurrection that killed over 200 people, including 22 police people, destroyed millions, if not billions of dollars of property in Nicaragua and terrorized the country for months. You know, people talk about the January 6th insurrection, which lasted a few hours and a few people died. I think, you know, maybe one or two actually there. Some died later from suicide. Or Here, 200 people were brutally tortured and murdered, right? People were raped. And there were 200 plus people who were, I mean, more than that were arrested. Most, though, were freed very quickly. But there were 200 plus people who were arrested on very significant charges. And even they, many of them were released and given amnesty. But they very quickly violated their amnesty agreement, 
which was to stop organizing violent, you know, attempts at a coup d'etat. So some of those people were jailed again and again by, in the last several months, they were ultimately flown to the United States and freed here. Again, much to their happiness, most of these people were working for the U.S. and trying to overthrow Ortega. But again, what the 60 Minutes piece does not talk about is the brutality of these people in 2018. Not just against the government. I mean, more or importantly, against the Nicaraguan people themselves. It was very much like the Contra War of the Eight. And again, all the government of Nicaragua did, frankly, was what any government would do against these treasonous people, except kind of a lot nicer than most governments would do. Many gov- right, many governments would line them up and shoot them. I mean, it took them weeks to respond, right? For your book, like they didn't even like do anything to stop this immediately. They let it go on for weeks and weeks. For 50 days, the police in Nicaragua were ordered to stay in their barracks because that's what the what the church asked for. And Ortega agreed. So the police were held in their barracks. But Ortega was strategic about this. He knew a couple things. I mean, what he you know, he did that for a couple reasons. One, because the church asked for it, so he wanted to seem conciliatory. But two, he also was like, okay, a lot of the Nicaraguans are being fooled about what's happening, about who's committing the violence, because many believe the police were doing. So he also believed, hey, I'll just give in to the Vatican and I'll tell the police to stay in their barracks. And guess what? The people will learn pretty quickly who's committing the violence. And that's what happened. By the end of the 50 days, the people were like, that's it, please help us come out of your barracks and get rid of these crazies because they're killing us and raping us, right? And that is the story you have not heard. And I was there at the end of that period. And I was there in July of 2018, just as that insurrection was ending and the, and, and the last barricades called Franke's were being cleared. And I was at the July 19th celebrations, you know, the Sandinista Revolution celebrations, July 19, 2018. And it was an amazingly emotional and powerful event there in Managua because people were celebrating not only the overthrow of Somoza in 1979, they were celebrating the overthrow of another counter-revolutionary attempt. And that is the story that's not told. It's not told by the mainstream press. It's not told by democracy now. It's not told by most of the Latin American studies programs in America. But that's a reality. I saw that. Max Blumenthal was with me. We saw that. You know, I talked to people that were sobbing, sobbing about what had happened to them in, the, in, in those months, and not at the hands of the Sandinistas, but at the hands of these violent coup leaders. And they were sobbing also tears of joy for being liberated by the Sandinistas from that. So that is the reality of what happened. Yeah. And meanwhile, we have leftists here organizing events to platform these counter-revolutionaries. Of course. <laughs> like DSA and whatnot. No, it's a shame. It's shameful. It's absolutely shameful. I'll just say a lot of this goes back, you know, when the Sandinistas lost the election in 1990, 
that happened to correspond to also the collapse of the East Bloc and then the Soviet Union in 1991. And I think those events continue to reverberate in the Western left. I think the Western left has never found its bearings since that time and doesn't know how to spot a revolution when it sees one, right? And and that's a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. Yeah. I guess my basic litmus test is, does the U.S. support this movement? And if it does, I should probably be on the other side of it. I yeah, well, <laughs> I don't I know what else to say at this point. Yeah, like, that's certainly the place to start, right? That That is where you should start your analysis. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I want to be clear. That's not like the end-all be-all, but that's the kind of initial dipping the toe in the water of which way this is going. Absolutely. Absolutely. In any case, um, so yeah, so we definitely need to, and hopefully we can do a little bit here with Pale to hopefully provide a better orientation on these things in the future, because, you know, and this is going to touch, I think, on some of the direction we talked about as we wrapped up last time, as we start to wrap up here, Dan, but, you know, obviously, as we mentioned before, you know, we're living in this time of the rise in multipolarity, I guess, or the decline of U.S. hegemony, however you want to put it. What does that mean for a place like Nicaragua? What would a decline in U.S. empire mean for those people? What kind of opportunities would it would it bring about for them to kind of expand upon the gains of the original Sandinista revolution? I mean, it means everything, right? I mean, a country like Nicaragua has been captive to U.S. capital for well over a century. And so when the U.S. puts sanctions on a country like Nicaragua, it has a huge impact, mostly on the most vulnerable people, right? Causes incredible suffering. And so to have other another pole to go towards, to go to the East, to go to Russia, to go to China, to go to Iran for trade, for development help, for investment, it's a lifeline. It has to be there. In the same way, again, that it was critical in the 80s that the Sandinistas had the Soviet Union to go to, the East Bloc. You know, when I was in Nicaragua in 87, I saw so many people there, particularly from East Germany, by the way. It was very helpful. They need that those alternative countries to stay af- afloat. And that is emerging now. And, you know, Nicaragua was recently formally uh, recognized the People's Republic of China, signed up to the Belt and Road Project. And again, that is a, a crucial for them. And that's why we should welcome the multipolar world, because there are so many other countries like Nicaragua that need the very same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from, you know, I think our perspective here, I think this multipolarity term gets kind of abused a little bit by some folks that want to just say, oh, well, it's just going to open up a bunch of new capitalist empires. And I think we have to be very critical of that stance and acknowledge that this is a good for a lot of countries around the world. It's not the end all be all in terms of what we want to actually see happen, but seems like a good progressive step forward. It absolutely is. Absolutely is. All right. With that, I think we'll start wrapping up. The book is Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Dan, if you want to tell us uh, where we can find it and what else you may have going on right now. Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, Nick. I appreciate this opportunity. You can get my book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 
your local bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it, or you can go directly to my publisher, Clarity Press, to buy it. My main big things happening is that I will return to Russia in the Donbass at the end of this month. In fact, I will arrive in Russia on Lenin's birthday, April 22nd. So follow me on Twitter and Facebook for my updates. Unfortunately, we might have to get you back on to get another update for that for the Pale Podcast, man. So you I'd might be, be very happy to <laughs> you might Thank be you. captive for a while. But uh, no, keep us posted on that. On the Pale side, we do have an event coming up on April 15th at 11 a.m. at the Hill District Library in Pittsburgh. It's going to be called Paul Robeson, Fighter for World Peace, and it's going to be presented by uh, Jahan Chaudhry. So we're really excited about that to talk about one of the great anti-imperialist figures, I think, in U.S. history in Paul Robeson. So if you're in the area, please come out to that. Other than that, please follow us on Instagram at Pitt Anti-Imperialist League. And if you can, please rate, share the podcast, help spread the word about these talks and the events we have going on around here. So thank you for joining and solidarity.